Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Rubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey there, everybody. It's Andy Richter uh, with the three questions again. And uh, I am talking uh, this week to a very funny know-it-all, uh, Mr. Adam Conover, who you've, you've sort of made a career out of, like, uh, making people unhappy with your information. I, that's, a, uh, I, that's how I put it sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I make them unhappy. Well, you, you're the one who picked... Adam ruins everything. Like you, True. you dubbed yourself like a, a ruiner. So it's but not it's me. A char- it's a it's a character, Andy. I mean, That's what that they all like- say. That's what every <laughs> prick in this business says. <laughs> it's a character. You know, That's as true. you're pistol whipping someone, it's a character. <laughs> Fair enough. Right, Fair right. enough. Right. No, it's like the. No, it's true. Like. Larry David can say it's just a character, but we know he's really like yes, that. Yes, absolutely. And, Everyone And knows I am that. the same way. Yeah, no, I uh, people, as I walk down the street, children burst into tears. You know, mother <laughs> mothers cover their faces. Uh, dogs uh, shit on the sidewalk. Like, it's uh, people, people hate to see me coming because they just know well, I'm going to reveal some information that's going to destroy their lives. No, I don't think so. But, I mean, is that something that, Prior to getting into entertainment, like, was that sort of, do you like being a pill, as they say in the Midwest? (laughs) No, I don't think I like it. Uh, What I often say is that the character of Adam Ruins Everything, or or the sort of comedic uh, engine that we created on on Adam Ruins Everything, was based on, like, a younger version of myself. That I was often piping up when I wasn't supposed to and telling people things I had learned and getting yelled at or chastised for it. I was a kid with... (laughs) I was a kid with ADD. I had poor impulse control. Yeah. I had a poor understanding of social norms, and so other kids were always like, "Adam, what the? What are you taught? Shut the fuck up!" Yeah. You know, teachers were like, "Pipe down and sit down." You know, that was I was always, "Oh, I'm. So, what did I do? I messed up." Yeah. You know, and so I created a show where just it's full of people who are constantly yelling at me <laughs> uh, for acting that way, and. As a result, a lot of people end up relating to it. Like a lot of folks, I didn't anticipate this, but a lot of uh, folks who are on the autism spectrum really relate to the show because my character on the show has a very sort of poor understanding of social, you know, is always, he's always making social mistakes. He's always saying something that is factually true, but socially incorrect and getting and berated. And then he's like, oh, I'm sorry, but in a comedic way. 
And so a lot of folks on that spectrum are like, oh, I really relate to that. Yeah. You know, and maybe I'm a, maybe I'm, a, I don't know how the spectrum works. Maybe I'm a 0. 0.01 on it. Maybe I have a little bit of it in myself that made me, uh, you know, have that experience too that they relate to. Yeah. No, I think that that's, I think the ADHD and the being smart, it, like those two can often lead to, because I was kind of the same way. Mm. And, and in fact, I remember, I remember like one of the most humiliating uh, moments I had with a teacher was in junior high who was telling us about, and, and I, you know, watched a lot of PBS. So I knew a lot of <laughs> English stuff and he was talking about the difference in, you know, like that uh, a car a hood is a, uh, a bonnet, you know. Yes. And as he would go, like a uh, like Santa car, we call it a hood. They call it a, and I would go bonnet, and you know, policeman <laughs> is a, and I would go Bobby. And after, and I mean, you know, after seven or eight of those, he, yeah, you know, he he literally insulted me and said, uh, if I open my <laughs> mouth one more time, I have a lot of memories like that. Yeah, you know, I I have memories of. Like being in class and a teacher being, she's making some point about overpopulation or something, you know, or like, oh, when you have too many people, like, where are you going to put them? Like, so just so making some general point like that. And I said, well, we could buy more land. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, like America purchased Alaska from Russia because I had like learned that, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, like a week prior. Right, right. And uh, she was like, what the hell? What are you? Okay. Whatever, uh-huh. moving on. Like yeah. just this one thing I had learned, I had to blurt out. Well, and also, there's plenty of Alaska that there's room for. Like we already have Alaska. Like we could fill up Alaska right now. You know, we don't need to yeah. buy more. I I know. Yeah. With, with, and also, after you buy it, what good is that going to do? You just need more, even more land. Yeah. Like it's a zero sum game. Right. So, right. You know. And all the good land is taken. What are we gonna? You know, <laughs> buy the south of France? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, there's Antarctica when you think about it. <laughs> Antarctica is this whole continent. Isn't that weird? It's a whole continent. We're not doing shit with I it. Know, we've, I know. We've colonized Phoenix, uh, right? That's an unlivable uh, wasteland. Yeah, yeah. That's a hellscape. The, Come yeah, on. Where's, where's the Las Vegas of Antarctica? <laughs> Give Surely. it time. Give it time. <laughs> As we ruin the planet, other places will become popular. That's one of the upsides of ruining the planet. Yeah. It's all the beachfront property in Antarctica. People aren't thinking about this uh, in our lifetimes. There's definitely going to be you're going to you're going to be like well maybe I'll be 85. I think you'll be dead by this time Andy, but I think when I'm 85 Fuck you, dude. I'm going to live forever. <laughs> I'm incredible. I'm incredibly healthy. Any day now I'm going to start that diet and exercise regimen. <laughs> I I just think it'll take about that amount of time. It'll be the window where you're dead. I'm still alive. Yeah. But I'm gonna be opening the I'm gonna be opening the magazine, and it's gonna say, uh, "Oh, people are starting to go on pleasure vacations to Antarctica. Yeah, it's yeah. so warm now that hey, in the summer months, it's quite temperate. Right. Uh, and and you know that'll be the that'll be the universe. Right. Right. I or think. remember Miami. You know that's I'm sure that's you know that could very well be in our. Oh, Miami's not going to be around five years from now. Yeah, yeah. It's it, they're they're already having sunny day flooding there, which mm. is just like it's not raining, but it's flooding. Yeah. because of the sea levels rising, because it's so low to the ground and there's so the drainage there's so poor. Sunny day flooding. What it? <laughs> it That's sounds, what they call it. I know, but it sounds like a it sounds like a, a you know like a Mamas and the Papas album title. 
Uh, <laughs> sunny day flooding. It sounds so so chipper. Um, well, now you're originally from New York State, right? Correct. I grew up on Long Island. On Long Island, and yeah. your folks are brainiacs, right? Yes, I'm. The, as I d- opened every stand-up set I did for like seven or eight years with, uh, I'm the only member of my family who doesn't have a PhD. Wow. And is that like a disappointment to them or do they really, you know? I mean, I think I finally, they now see me as going into the family business because my sister, uh, my sister actually has a PhD in particle physics and Uh she left academia, left research to become a science journalist. She's now a science writer at uh, Science News Magazine, which is a wonderful uh, science publication. Um, and so my dad always had an interest. He was a marine biologist, but he always had an interest in science communication. And so they sort of see me as a little bit in the family business, you know. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, w- I would say I was more pressure I put on myself than on, uh, you know, uh, th- than them putting it on me. I wanted to go to grad school, but I wanted to go to grad school for philosophy. And I'm really glad I didn't do that in 2004. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't have been great <laughs> to come out of grad school with, let's be honest, I probably would have gotten a master's yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. right into the teeth of the, uh, of the, you know, that economic crisis of the Great Recession. Right. Wouldn't right. have gone great for me. So, but comedy happened to pick up around that time uh, for me. My college sketch group um, started to have a little bit of success in the very early internet, and I just sort of went full on into comedy, and I'm pretty happy I did. Now, when you were younger, uh, you have a sister and and a brother, or is it? That's just a sister. Just a sister. I don't know where you're hearing all this bad information. There's no brother, all right? No matter what the rumor mill says, I know there's a lot of people out there, you know, there's conflicting (laughs) things on the internet. I've never had a brother. Yeah, yeah. Making claims. They want a piece of your fortune. Um, no, no, no. Don't believe what you hear. Okay. There's a lot of people out there saying that they were cut out of such and such a will. No such person right. exists. All right. The okay, courts have I been clear you. on this matter. But is your sister older or younger? She's a year younger than She's me. She's a year younger than you. So you were yeah. the oldest kid. And yes. were you like in school? Were Is there pressure to like really excel academically or is it just something that kind of came naturally? Oh, I mean, I never excelled academically. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't assume. Well, I was an ADD kid. I had, um, you know, I, I, I was one of those kids where they were always like, he's smart. What's his problem? Yeah. You know? uh, he has like, such potential. That's what I always heard. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he'd and, apply and, himself. It, I had trouble focusing in school, you know. I was only interested in things that interested me, that kind of problem. Mm-hmm. I remember I, like, scored better on my SATs than, like, all of the other kids in the school who were, like, real grinds. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There's the smart kids who are, like, they're fucking grinding away. And um, I got a high enough score that I got some kind of award for it or something. There's, like, a national merit thingy. I don't know. There's yeah. some kind of, like thing they give you if you have a high enough SAT score. And the grind kids were like, Adam, you're like not a good student. Like, yeah. how? what? They were all mad. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know, guys. I guess I just fucking test well. Yeah. Guess I don't, you know, I'm a space case, but, you know, I know my my synonyms. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I'm smart. I'm not stupid like they say I am. I'm smart. I have an underlying skill. When I finally went to college, I sort of, that's when I fell in love with, 
you know, learning because I was able to chart my own path and like, yeah. in, you know, research the things that were interesting to me. I went to a liberal arts school called, called Bard College where it was very much like, what do you want to study? Like, you're a little scholar, you know, you're as smart as anybody. So, why, you know, let's do the research. And uh, that I really liked rather than, you know, the sort of public high school yeah. uh, type of learning. Well, you're, well, I mean, as you're, as you're growing up, what do you, what were sort of your aspirations? What were you sort of hoping oh. to do? I mean, there was a, the, the aspirations I can remember was that for a long time, I wanted to just like work with computers. Um, like I loved video games mm -hmm. and I was very early on the internet, like sometime around like 1997 or eight, like we got a cable internet connection. Um, I had always loved computers, but my memory is that literally the, um, the cable company called our house and I happened to pick up the phone and they said, we're doing a pilot program of cable internet. Do you want it at your house? And I, since I picked up the phone, I was like, yes, I do. And then when <laughs> they like came to install them, it, please. yeah, <laughs> when, when they came to install it, for some reason, my parents hooked it up directly to my room. We didn't have a router. It was just like, went you know straight to the modem into the computer and they just had to go directly into my room as opposed to any other room of the house and then from then on i just spent like all night every night on the internet wow. just like the 1998 internet like the the fun good internet <laughs> you know just like surfing the web i was making websites and stuff like that i was masturbating a lot of course of course of I course mean, that's what it's for you would be wasting but, your time if you weren't you would be wasting all that internet <laughs> But I, so like I taught myself like web design, early web design. And I was like, wow, one day, what if I could be a web developer? And I kept doing stuff like that, like throughout college. And then when I graduated, you know, me and my comedy group, we all moved to New York together to like do sketch comedy. And I got a, I got a day job, you know, making websites. Um, and then I realized that was a bad job to have. Like, and I'm glad I didn't go into that as a career. I mean, I guess I, I honestly might have, could have maybe made more money than I have in the in the entertainment industry if I'd gotten into tech that early. But like, you know, it's not actually a very stimulating career. Is that uh, what you mean by bad? Me. Uh, that would have been a bad job for you. Is just I, yeah, I think so. I yeah. mean, ultimately, you just mean as a just, personal thing. It's not that like, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think it. You know, coding is. Well, it it stops. What I liked was the creative part of it. I liked figuring out, I want to make a website. How do I do it? You know? And then later on, actually, I got into one of the other ways I made a living in my 20s when I was doing comedy for free in basements, you know, in that mm -hmm. period, um, was I did video editing and I did visual effects using Adobe After Effects. I would do special effects, you know, um, explosions and things like that. Like, I... I even before I started working for College Humor as a writer, I was doing visual effects for them. And I liked that because it was really creative. You know, I would be like, okay, there's, you have to make uh, bullet holes. You have to make a robot that flies around or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. You're just good, you've got a piece of software that you do it with and you figure it out. But if I had gone into those things as a career, I right. mean, visual effects as a career is not creative you're working on a team of hundreds of people yes you're working 12 hour days you know taika watiti wants thor's you know hammer to glisten more here mm -hmm. so start over and make a new hammer yeah. you know it's it's a grind right um and i think web development and coding is is the same thing in many ways not that the entertainment industry can't be a grind too but it is you know yeah, yeah. creativity first no you have and well and also too you have to really be able to handle minutia that's the part that i could never you know, I went to film school, and I went to film school in, you know, the 80s, 
basically. And it, it was and the 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 animators at that time. I mean, animators are already kind of weird. They're still weird. Like they're among film professionals, they tend to be a little more weird. I mean, and I oh, yeah. do not mean that in a pejorative way at all. I just I mean do. That. They're weirder. They're <laughs> fucking weirdos. But. You know, that was in those days, too, it was because they had to draw every single cell, you know, and and the same thing, like you said, about putting explosions on things that was just that was unthinkable. Like, there's no way. And you could just do that on your phone now, you know. Yeah. But um, the the thing that kills me is like a friend of mine's partner is an animator and he worked on one of the Disney movies. I, I think it was. I can't remember what, what what it was, but he was just responsible for one of the characters' dress, like just how <laughs> the dress moved, and that was just his department for. And it was like four years of his life just focusing on this dress. And with my ADD, I'm just like, how? Oh, there's no way I would be able to to handle well, that. Wh- one of the things I like working about, well, I like about working in TV. You know, on on a set like ours, or I'm sure, you know, a a set like the ones you've worked on is you've got, you know, when we would shoot Adam Ruins Everything or the G Word, you know, sometimes you have a hundred people on set um, or working on the set in some capacity and every single one of them has a different job and every single person could never in a million years imagine doing anyone else's job. Mm -hmm. Like it's the hardest thing ever. Like when I look at, you know, I, I I don't know if you ever do this in a, in a moment of, quiet, I would look over and look at the boom mic guy, the guy whose job is to hold the boom mic. And I'm like, this man's job is to take this long, it's like a 10 foot long pole. Mm -hmm. He has to hold it over his head for, you know, sometimes 10, 15 minutes at a stretch, literally, you know, up like this in a stress position. And he's got headphones on and his whole job is just to listen to what other people are doing Mm -hmm. very closely and hear if there's another sound, you know, that if a plane starts to fly over, he says, sorry, guys, we got to hold for a plane. And I have been, when I was starting out as a sketch comedy guy, I would sometimes have to hold the boom mic because I was, you know, it was, we were just five people in a sketch comedy group and that was my job. And I couldn't fucking stand it to just stand there and have to think about just the sound being good and do nothing else. Yeah. It would require a level of focus I didn't have. And so I look at him and I say, this guy's an athlete. And so is the guy holding the steady cam. Mm-hmm. And so is, you know, the woman, uh, you know, doing set deck and, you know, the, or, the guy you know, pushing so the, the dolly. Yeah. The yeah, woman yeah. directing the show, looking at having to like look at every like uh, directing. I can't even there are parts of directing that I like and I, I get into it sometimes. But, you know, from doing the soup to nuts directing of like something narrative, very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, and all of those people couldn't imagine, oh, standing in front of the camera and having everyone look at you? Yeah, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. So nerve-wracking. Writing is so difficult. You have to sit in a chair and, like, you know, fucking pull your hair out. Like, it's uh, – we're all sort of suited to our different, you know, uh, role that we fall into, mm-hmm. and luckily so. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Do you know someone struggling to figure out their mental health benefits? The Mental Health Insurance Assistance Office is here to help. 
Find us at insurance.ohio.gov slash G-E-T-M-H-I-A or call us at 855-438-6442. Don't wait. The Mental Health Insurance Assistance Office can help you figure out what mental health insurance benefits may be in their plan. Call us today at 855-438-6442. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Can't you tell my love's a crow? Now, watch something that strikes me as interesting and unique is that you went from with a group from college and moved to New York City. I mean, yeah. it's not it's not a huge move. I mean, Bard isn't that far, but you know, it's, nah, it's just upstate a little yeah, bit. Yeah, far enough. You know, it's still you guys decided to stay together. And that is such I've been in comedy groups. I know what kind of a delicate ecosystem that can be. <laughs> and I'm just I mean, how how did you manage that? I mean, there's just so many personalities. How many of you were there, first of all? I mean, we managed it very poorly, uh, but, you know, we were all in our, you know, late teens, early 20s. So, I mean, well, we started at college and the group, you know, at some, you know, at some times had like 10 or 11 people in it. Yeah. And then people would drift That's in too or many. out. That's too many. Yeah. It's yeah. too many. And then eventually, like, there was a process where one after another, people started getting kicked out of the group. Wow. You know, like, ah, uh, we don't like this. Per- this person is, uh, the rest of us kind of, is this person funny? You know, like that. How is that done? How How is that man? Terribly. It was done terribly. I had to be in the room once when we were like, okay, we're going to go over and tell this person that they're kicked out of the group. And I was one of the two people who had to go. I wasn't the one who was speaking, but the other right. person was. And it was just like. It was very grim, yeah. you know. It was and really did it rough. just start with like minor rumblings between two people, and then you bring a third person into it, and y'all start being like, "We should kill this guy," you know. Like, I- <laughs> <laughs> this guy's got to go. Mean, it's been a long time since I thought about this. Yes, it was kind of like that. I yeah. was never the person who wanted to do it because I-, I was always in fear of getting kicked out myself, and I was always when we got down to our sort of final five, which is sort of the canonical, you know, membership of, mm-hmm. of the group. Uh, that that we you know when we really were getting serious about the internet that was who was in the group, uh, you know I was like how did how did I never get kicked out and I eventually figured out that it was because this is what I told myself is because I was the one who did all of the post production and editing and I built the website <laughs> and so <laughs> like I I yeah. knew how to do all the technical stuff you, like in, I literally in the in the band sense you were you were the one with a van. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I was the one who debugged everybody else's Final Cut Pro projects, you know, <laughs> and went, okay, here's I taught everyone else how to capture footage from DV yeah. tape, you know. I just taught myself how to do all this stuff because, you know, at that time Max had suddenly evolved all of these features that let you edit video natively. Right. And and so that was a big part of it for me. Anyway, honestly, the whole group ran on you know, social, like loose social hierarchy of the type that, frankly, young men have mm-hmm. when they're at that age in yeah. that context. So we had a couple guys who were, you know, sort of on top of the totem pole. And, you know, when they wanted to do something, it would always happen. And then there were those of us like me at the bottom of the totem pole who were like, well, I'd like to do this. And I'm like, uh, I don't know if we think that idea is funny, so it might not happen. Mm. But those other guys never had to ask 
us if we thought it was uh, fun. So there you know were I mean? like de facto leaders that were just yes. naturally held that mantle just because yes. the way the dynamics yes. were. Yeah. Cor- correct. And, you know, those so those people might decide, oh, they were not as happy with someone else's performance in the group or, you know, and honestly, there there were also folks in the group who like, you know, sometimes or other were less funny than others, mm-hmm. you know, like not not that they weren't good people, but it's just like, hey, this is not we're not getting a comedy energy here, whatever. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it was it was so unprofessional in every sense of the word. Um, that I, I regret a lot of what yeah, happened yeah. there. And, and, you know, I, when the group finally, like, here's the thing. We went through a, a long period where we were actually working a lot. We went to the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen sure. in 2007. Big festival. We got a deal with Super Deluxe, the original incarnation oh, yeah. of the comedy website. Super, do you remember that website? I sure do. They just paid, I mean, they paid us, like, low six figures. Like, wow. they just gave us a bunch of money. We were all 21 years old and said, make us a bunch of sketches. And we made a bunch of sketches, most of which were, like, not the kind of thing anyone would want to watch on the internet. It was just us being creative, you know? Mm-hmm. It was like, they, these we were making glorified student films, yeah. you know, yeah, in terms yeah, of yeah. sketch comedy. But uh, some of them were successful, some of them were not. But so we were just like managing all this money like by ourselves in a big checking account. Like I eventually made a spreadsheet to track it. Wow. Like it was pretty nuts. Uh, We had like one guy who was our poor business manager who our manager hooked us up with who was like trying to do all of our accounting, which is a total mess. Um, We were, you know, we didn't even know to storyboard things before we shot them. And we were treating each other terribly. You know, it was yeah. very high pressure. We were always playing all-nighters and just, like, people be- being really mean to each other. And so then, you know, the, the group finally broke up. And at the time, I was devastated because I was like, oh, that's it for me in comedy. But then I was like, no, I'm not going to quit comedy. I want to keep doing this. And I started doing, like, stand-up and improv and teaching sketch comedy at Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Mm-hmm. And what I found was, like, oh, every new relationship I make with somebody, now that I'm, like, 25, right, and I'm, I'm doing it as an adult, now everyone I meet treats me with respect. They don't treat me like the guys in the group did, and I don't treat them that way either. Yeah. And, like, oh, wow, we're learning – we're actually – this is how you treat fellow performers and collaborators. So. Yeah. You know, it was a big learning experience in terms of we had, you know, I'm so lucky that that old group, Old English, had so much creativity. There were so many people in it who were so creative and so driven and we made really amazing things together. And it gave me like my first taste of like, this is what it is to make comedy and had some early success. But I'm equally grateful for having early failure where the group fell apart and I had to start over Yeah, because it taught me the difference between good creative relationships and unhealthy creative relationships. And it also taught me um, that you're going to have ups and downs in your career because I've seen so many people in comedy who grind it out. They don't have the early success I did where some website paid us a hundred thousand dollars, you know, to make videos. Um, They grind it out and they have their first success at age 33. Yeah. And then they're like, as soon as a whisper of negativity comes, like, oh my God, it could, all, it could all go away right now. Yeah. And I had the experience in my early 20s of having some success and then having it all fall apart and having to rebuild. And that gave me a little bit of a sense of equanimity of like, okay, well, you know, if uh, I'm making TV now, but if I never get to make TV in the future, I can still find other work that I that I like to do and that I that I want to do. Um, yeah. And, and so I'm grateful for that experience too. It's it's interesting. I mean, just it. You're taking me back to like the days of being in a comedy group, where yeah. you know it's like like they always say about playing tennis. You know, you want to play tennis with somebody that's a little better than you, and you'll play uh-huh. at the top of your game. 
Whereas if you play somebody worse than you, then you'll play shitty too. You sort of, yeah. you know, meet the person that you're, the skill level. And I remember be, being in groups where there were just like some people that were just clunkers. And, yeah. you know, and they, it would sort of work itself out. Usually, you know, there was usually somebody in charge of the, of the group, you know, because they were, you know, it was IO Improv Olympic at the time or the Annoyance Theater. It was these Chicago groups that had a power structure. So it would kind of work out. And then sometimes it wouldn't. Sometimes you yeah. just, you would just on a regular serial basis be on stage with someone that was just awful. And, yeah. and you know, you don't want to, it's, I, I would never would want to be a dick about it because it's, but you do want, somebody to just take them aside and yeah. be like, ah, it's not really working. But then again, who are you to say when you're young and the That's stakes the are other so problem. low? Yeah. That's the other problem. Cause, cause working at, at UCB for so many years, you know, and other places like that, like, you know, I spent my twenties in New York working places like UCB or the Creek and cave, which had a, um, you know, a manager who would favor or disfavor people yeah. or, you know, people trying to get on late night or whatever. And there are all these people who are like, you know, ah, you're doing good work and you're not, and we're going to choose you. And eventually you realize like all those people are idiots, yeah. like including the people who were choosing people at UCB. Oh, absolutely. Right? <laughs> absolutely. And, like spent many years there and some fine people and some not so fine people ran that place. But after you look under the floorboards and you hear some stories, you're like, what the fuck did they do to this great person? And mm -hmm. why was this shitty person elevated? Yeah. And why was there such a strict hierarchy here to begin with? You yeah. Know? So I agree, like, other than the fact that the hierarchy benefits the people at the top who yeah. get to make the choices and right. puts them in the position of being the kings of comedy. So you, it, it's a delicate balance you have to strike because, yes, you need to be able to, with professionalism and respect, say to people, hey, it's not working out. But you also don't want to have people who are at the top of this totem pole just saying, like, this is what comedy is because, right. like, they're always going to exclude people who, uh, you know, were wonderful. And also... It's rare that somebody that's a real super know-it-all, loudly and aggressively a know-it-all about comedy, is actually really that funny. I thought you were going to talk. I thought you were going to say something about me. You're like, it's rare that someone who's a know-it-all succeeds in comedy. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, no, because no. there are comedy know-it-alls. Yeah, and there, and I said, yeah. especially like among like TV writers. There was yeah. there's this particular kind of mid-level sitcom writer, and I haven't been in that world for a while, but when I was in that world, there's this middle guy that's really good at agreeing with the guy in charge mm -hmm. and loves to talk to you about the structure of things. But when it comes down to just like the joy part, the making yeah. each other happy with saying delightfully funny things, that guy is a limp, wet noodle. You know, yeah. uh, and it's usually very telling that the people that are very concerned with power dynamics, institutional structure, historical precedent, they're usually just afraid, you know? Yeah. And it, and it's interesting, too, like when you say, you know, that in, a, in your early years, this group picking people that aren't funny, that's like that's that's a huge part of professional comedy is saying that idea is not funny. You know, like that, I'm sorry, but, and I mean, and it was, you know, that was on the Conan show frequently, you know, and I mean, and it was, it was tough and you had to kind of like it, suck it up. And I was, oh, I was, because I kind of was like the consigliere, you know, and mm -hmm. there would be Conan and I would sort of like, we were sort of like the last word on like mm -hmm. whether something was going to get on the air. And 
there'd be bits that somebody would have shot and edited and put music to and you look at it before the show and then it's just like mm, yeah it doesn't work and I, you know and it's it's really sad but you you know just because the recipe took a long time to bake doesn't mean you're going to give it to the customers you know what oh, i mean yeah. it's like it's like it's got to be delicious you can't give them food that doesn't taste good you know absolutely but you also need to like an essential thing for comedy that i think about a lot is a lot of times you don't know if something is funny until the words are already out of your mouth. Yeah. And and as a comedian, you have to sort of trust yourself. You, I, the number of times I start a sentence without knowing how I'm going to end it. Yes. Either on stage or in conversation. In improv, and then, that's the deal. Yeah. Yeah. And when I do end it, oh my God, it was turned out it was a joke. Uh-huh. Right? Now, now what happens in order to get to that state is you got to say a lot of unfunny shit. Yeah. And you have to say, you have to believe that it's okay for you to say unfunny stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's what it took me a long time to get over when I, going back to my childhood when I was getting chastised by people all the time. Adam, why did you say that? I remember constantly these people going, Adam, that's not funny. Mm. Why did you say, you know, I'm like, well, I, you're just being loud. Well, yeah, being loud is the first step to being funny. Yeah, you just yeah. got to yell shit, and then eventually you learn how to have a punchline <laughs> at the end. And, and so you can have, especially at lower levels, you can have too much control and too much dictation. And I, I experienced that a lot at UCB, and I know exactly what you're talking about, about the, the mid-level person who gets too dictatorial, because a thing that happens a lot is, you know, once people get to a certain state, they start to take their own taste as, you know, they sort of reinforce their own taste as evidence that they deserve to be there. Yes, you know? as um, empirical so, truth. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll make, in in my writer's circles, we'll make fun of this a lot. There's a thing where writer, you know, screenwriters, TV writers on Twitter will sort of spout off about, like, the correct way to write a script is to do this. Yeah, like, yeah. you should never direct the camera. You should never say we zoom in on blah, 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 blah. And they'll say this very definitively. And I'm like... That's uh, these rules are bullshit. That's not true at all. Right, all right. Your only job is to paint a picture in the mind of the reader. Right. That's it. No one gives a shit about this. But people will make these declarative sentences because by so doing, they're setting themselves up in the eyes of the people listening and in their own eyes as being an expert, as being a professional working writer who knows how things are truly done. Yes. And it serves an important ego role for them. And the less success that you are really having, the more you need your ego boosted in that way. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. that's why the biggest, you know, in not just at UCB, but in um, like not quite professional level of comedy in general. The the we're all still trying to get good level. We're taking classes. We're doing open mics. We're you know we're doing showcases, stuff like that. The biggest ogres, the people who are the meanest to everybody else about like here's how comedy should be done. The people who would like reject you from a Herald audition or you know say you couldn't move on to the next level of improv class. Those were the comedians who were very good but were not working. You know, those are yeah. the people who yeah, yeah, yeah. who never quite achieved liftoff into professionalism. Instead, they're teaching. And so those are the ones who start setting down, these are the rules of improv as laid down by the gurus before me, and I myself am a guru, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it took me a long time to sort of see through that and go like, ah, like, you know what? The comedians I know who have gotten really good and have achieved liftoff and have, like, entered the wider world of comedy – they didn't really give a lot of shit about the gurus like you. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah. you might have a lot of good stuff to tell them, but I don't actually have to pass through you on my way to having a comedy career. I can learn yeah. from you if I choose, but guess what? 
the gate that you're blocking, there's no fence on either side of it, and I can just walk right around. You know? right. And I, I do try to encourage people who are trying to get into comedy to know that. Well, and also, too, the people that do it really well. Is, I mean, in improv in particular, uh, they, they, the rules are their plaything. Like they can yeah. do, they can do whatever the fuck they want because they have a facility. They, it's yeah. you know, they're they're artists and dancers. You know, the basic one is don't disagree. Some fantastic improvisers can make a hilarious game out of di- out of disagreeing. They can you know break the yeah. cardinal rule and make something fantastic. So yeah, the rules are good, and they are and they are good. Like the playing by the rules, there's a reason for it, and it's good, mm-hmm. but. But don't you know anybody that's like really that's giving you more rules and less funny? Mm, yeah, move on. You know. Yeah. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places. Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Can't you tell my love's a grow? How did you go from doing group stuff to, to stand-up? Wasn't that kind of terrifying, or had you already been dabbling? Well, my comedy group, Old English, did a show at UCB for years, uh, for a couple of years, called uh, called Very Fresh, which was a, you know, a showcase show where we would invite other comedians to be on the show. And so we would sort of do almost for our hosting bits, multi-person stand-up where, you know, however many of us would be on stage just sort of talking to the audience, sometimes just two of us. And I sort of really discovered that I loved doing that there. I just loved being on stage in front of the audience as myself, not necessarily performing a sketch. Yeah, it's not scene work or anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. Like, what's going on in the world today, you know? Maybe we've got a little bit that we're doing or whatever. And we would do that at at the original UCB location in the basement of Gristides, um, or actually their second location if you want to be technical about it. And um, (laughs) it was just like the best feeling in the world, you know, to have be in front of the audience and have that pop and have them all laugh, you know. And I just knew that I wanted more of that. And when the group broke up, I, you know, I'd always loved stand up and I was like, all right, time to do it. And here's what I can do. I can go to open mics. You know, that's the there is, in fact, a path I can follow, um, which was really important to be able to see. And, yeah, I did stand up and improv both for about three years. And then at the end of that, I was like. Well, I love stand-up, and I'm getting better at it. And at improv, I still wish I never had to step off the back line. I would Mm. still stand on the back line and be like, I hope that everyone else does scenes so I don't have to. And something about it didn't quite agree with me. I said, okay, I gave it a a real shot. Utmost respect for the art form. Uh, Not not quite my bag. I like to be myself on stage as opposed Mm to – I like to I, I like to inhabit the reality that we are all currently in. I like to say, "Wow, look at this weird room that we're all in." Doesn't it? Isn't it kind of weird in here? Or how are you guys feeling today? I don't like to create and destroy realities at, at a whim, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and say, "Now we're in a now we're in a bubblegum factory or whatever." No, no, let's just be in the comedy theater together. <laughs> that's the reality I like yeah. to be in. You know, it's too much. So much work. 
All that imagining, <laughs> so much work. <laughs> I felt a lot of pressure from it. I'm like, oh, oh, God, I have to create a consistent yeah. reality. Oh, how do I do it? I should probably try it again. I might enjoy it more now, years later. But. Yeah, you know, I, I don't do much improv. I mean, now I don't do any improv. I mean, especially through COVID. And for a long time, I felt really guilty about it because I had peers that were still doing it and like you know the ucb guys for year like well into having children you know and, yeah. and having day jobs they were still doing improv at night and i would always have like these pangs of guilt but it was a basic i mean you can probably relate it was like this basic thing about like i again i have a job i have i get plenty of of nice feedback you know, like in terms of, which mm-hmm. is like one of the things that you want as a performer. I already, I get that at work and I have kids and I just felt like, why do I want to leave the house to go get nervous somewhere? Like, <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's like, because I could go do, I did a TV show every day effortlessly. And I mean, you know, like just, but that it was like a calculated, not caring. You spoke about it a little bit about the giving yourself the freedom to fail because mm-hmm. you also, over time, realize that's the best way to make the best product mm-hmm. is is to divorce yourself from worrying about every little thing being perfect. Yeah. Where and I would I could do those TV shows every day, fine, and but I'd go and do improv for forty people and shit my pants with worry <laughs> and nervousness that I was gonna suck, you know. Yeah. And I mean, and also uh, to be absolutely frank, there was. You know, I was the TV guy coming to do improv, and you know, I people have I, expectations. Yeah, they have expectations that, and I mean, and I I did fine, you know, and and the last time I actually did, there was a fundraiser thing that I thought I was just gonna do like a monologue or something, and I found out literally two minutes before we started. Oh no, you're doing a full on long form improv thing with us. And it was so perfect that I didn't get to think about it. And I, again, I did fine, but I got to the end of it and I was like, all right, I'm set for another five years. I don't need, I don't need to do that again. Now, when you start doing stand up, do you, do you have like kind of a, like, are you looking at it as just an exercise in doing comedy and making people laugh? Or is there something that you want to say? Uh, I mean, I think the best comedy has something to say, and that's what I'm always trying to do. I mean, I, and I, it's possible that I put too much pressure on myself. Uh, right now, I'm trying to write a new hour show that I'm taking on the road. Um, if folks are listening in Washington, D.C., Nashville, Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, or New York City or San Diego, go to my website, adamconover.net slash tour dates for tour dates. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry to do the plug in the what middle. What do I care? You could do all plugs. I just got to <laughs> fill up some time here. <laughs> Great. Well, so I'm doing a I'm doing a new hour and I'm doing it about my ADD diagnosis as a kid and the attention economy and my own inability to continue to pay attention, you know, to this day. And, you know, it's a show that I has, you know, it's a lot of jokes. I'm also trying to have a point and have something that I'm saying and have a t- takeaway for the audience because that's the kind of show I like watching and that's what I like to do. But yeah, it does put a little bit more pressure on me to like write something coherent rather than, hey, here's just like an hour of silly jokes. You yeah, know what I yeah, mean? yeah. Now, you went from stand up, improv, and into college humor, and that's kind of was your entree into television. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I, I became a sketch writer at College Humor, and my job was to write two sketches a week. And one of those sketches uh, turned out to be the first Adam Ruins Everything. And then we eventually sold it as a TV show. And then I found myself the showrunner of a television show after a few weeks prior, having just been a 
staff writer at a website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was there imposter syndrome? Was it like, oh shit, I'm in over my head, this is way too fast, or? A little bit, but I sort of, I, I realized very quickly that TV shows are power vacuums, um, that you get as much power as you sort of claim for yourself, and that no one else was really stepping up to run the, th you know, there was nobody else to, yeah. to run the creative of it, and I had to do it. Um, and I sort of had to reconceive of myself quickly as, yeah, I am the sort of person who can do this, and then there's nothing to do but to do it. And it's actually kind of similar to what I was saying about sketch comedy earlier, about my sketch comedy group, that um, early on, I just gutted it out. You know, I just pushed myself really hard. And it yeah. took years before I learned how to build the systems to, you know, trust the other people I worked with and to trust myself um, and to not, as you say, worry about every single little thing um, and to have more trust uh, well, until I was finally able to do it in a little bit more uh, repeatable uh, less stressful sort of way. Um, but, you know, from the beginning, I was like, this is my one chance. This is my chance to make a TV show. This has to be as good as possible. And I just poured everything I could into it. Yeah. And it's a daunting thing to take what I imagine wasn't much more than a few minutes of a segment and stretch it out into a half an hour of television show. Mm. And did you have somebody sort of like assisting you with that stretching process? Uh, I mean, I had I had uh, writers, you know, who we brought on for the first season, um, an incredible first year writing staff, um, uh, Murderers Row, frankly. Uh, but and we figured out how to do it together. But I did sort of figure it out in the pitch that, you know, every we had done four segments of Adam Ruins Everything and each one of them was an explanatory story, you know, uh, on a particular topic. And so I was like, all right, we'll do three that are part of a theme and then we'll have a takeaway at the end, you know, that knits them all together. Right, right. Um, and so I you know, knew that we would do that, but but that's about it. Yeah. One of the things that I like about comedy is there's no homework, and yet you pick comedy that has tons of homework. What's wrong with you? Uh, I know. It was honestly uh, made the show very difficult to write. I mean, our, our show was one of the most intensely researched shows on television, and it also had a storyline. Every episode had a story and a plot and an emotional arc that we had to take very seriously. Uh, so... It was, yeah, I mean, it was a, it, it was an extremely difficult show to write. And I remember w we used to do writing packets and have writers submit, which yeah. uh, we eventually really scaled them back because we realized that, um, you know, a, the Writers Guild, uh, which I am now a board member of and have the utmost respect for, was like, you shouldn't have these onerous writing packets. I just, we had instituted them because I was used to writing them for other shows, but it was, you know... Uh, we would ask people to like research and write a segment of the show, and people are like, "This is hard. Like you are, this is a hard show to write." And it was, you yeah. know, it was. Um, uh, I'm very proud of what we did because every episode, like, um, you know, we wove together like what we hoped was revelatory information with like a real. A character arc for mm -hmm. me and another character simultaneously and sketch comedy gags and all this stuff. It was like as ambitious as a show could be. And, you know, it's kind of a bummer for me now that, uh, you know, uh, I was very happy to make the G word on Netflix, which is a very, uh, you know, also a very ambitious show that we try to do a lot with. But when I look around television now, it doesn't feel like there's as many networks that are trying to do ambitious comedy. Mm -hmm. You know, they want like a nice little comedy show. They want some characters. They want it to work, you know, but they don't want to like break the format by doing some like really crazy extra execution-y shit other than maybe HBO, which of course has like, yeah. you know, John Wilson and some, and some really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, and adult yeah, Nathan Swim, Fielder. Still, yeah. 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 
those places. Yeah. But I mean, but yeah, but you're, I mean, that was what was kind of great about, well, what's great about what you're, you know, what you do is that it's not just empty calories. Like there's, you're actually getting to the end of being entertained and you have actually learned some stuff. And that's what I always loved about uh, your old show. I haven't seen the G word, but I need to, I need to check it out because. Please uh, check it out. It's, it's out on Netflix now. It's a six episode series. It's about, it's about the federal government or actually the government in general and how it works and, and all the ways it affects our lives, good and bad. And yeah, I mean, our, one of my goals is to, there's so much documentary out there that is a slow as molasses, like very information light. You know, you're, it's like always slow zooms and dramatic music and you almost never hear anything. And then it's telling you shit you already know. Yeah. You know, it's like, here's the history of, you know, here's a, here's a biography of a musician who you already know the musician's biography because right. you love them. But here it is again. Yeah, you know, yeah. Netflix literally has this show called History 101 and the episodes are like, the space race. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, I fucking know about the space race. I learned about it in high school. And it's just like Buzz Aldrin went to the mo- Yeah, I know. Yeah. Tell me what I don't know. Yeah. And so th- those are the big things for me is always try to try to find the information that is actually revel- uh, revelatory, that will actually make people go, holy shit, is that true? What yeah. the fuck? And then also to make it as information dense as possible so that we are bombarding you with information and with jokes. Um, that's how we hook people in. And it, you know, it, it worked, I think. You, you mentioned that you're working on a new hour. Um, mm-hmm. But what, el- what else is in the future? I mean, are you pitching other shows? Do you have other things that you've got on plate? Oh, and, and, and I mean, in, or just like in life, like, you know, you're going to buy a boat, yeah. you know, you build in your own <laughs> spaceship. What's going on? I've been, tr- well, stand up has been a real focus of mine because while working, you know, stand up is still my real first love in comedy. It's my favorite thing to do. And it is, uh, you know, it was something I didn't have as much time to do as I wanted to while working in TV for many years. So that's, you know, I'm re- so happy that COVID's not over, but at least I can tour again and I can go, you know, do comedy in front of people. It's been really meaningful to me. I am pitching some new TV shows, but they're very early stages and like nothing that is even worth mentioning because it might not ever exist. Yeah, yeah but, of course. You know, it's a very long, slow TV development process. But are they sim? Are they similar? Or are they sort of you know? Are they more narrative things? Are they you know? The first thing, is, okay, I'll I'll say to you the first thing that we're talking about. Uh, me and my uh, partners, who uh, I made uh, these two guys, John and John, who I uh, work do my TV work with. Um, we're working on a game show idea, and that's all I'm gonna say. Oh, cool! But um, you know, yeah, it's like a kind of a, a, a it's similar. People will see if it ever comes to light, which I hope it does, and I think it will. Um, it has connections to my previous work in ways that will be apparent to people, but it's you know, it's a it's a game show. Yeah. Um, and uh, I hosted previously a game show on Nickelodeon called The Crystal Maze for just mm-hmm. one season. Uh, that was super fun, and I'm just like, man, I just love. I kind of love the art of broadcasting. You know, I just love. You know, stepping out there, hitting the mark, you know, looking at the prompter, delivering the lines really well, keeping the energy up, you know, all those sort of just wonderful things about being on television. In addition to just the, in addition to, you know, comedy and being funny, it's just kind of fun to just do it, you know? Yeah. Um, And so looking for more opportunities to do that. And then I'm just trying to, you know, I have a podcast called Factually. I'm all over TikTok. I'm trying to like figure out, all right, we're in this media world now where you just kind of have to be publishing and posting on every platform all the time you know mm-hmm. I've, I've found that people actually kind of weirdly uh care about what i have to say and are interested in what i say about things and you know people like are 
like literally in the last uh, Los Angeles uh, election, uh, primary election, people were texting me saying, Adam, are you going to do a voter guide? I need to know who, who to vote for. Will you tell me? <laughs> I was like, all right, I guess That's I'll. That's a lot of pressure, but okay. It's a lot of pressure. I've gotten very involved in local politics here in LA, but but people were like, yeah, I want to know who you think I should vote for. Okay, I'll publish a fucking voter guide. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. you know. All right. It's, uh, it, it, you know, I, I've been getting more and more involved in, you know, uh, politics and, and my union and, and the, you know, the world. And, and that, that's been very, uh, very, very fulfilling to me, although it's also been a, an awful lot of work. Yeah. Uh, what do you want people to take away from the story you've told on this podcast? I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> that's, I, I think have, if, listen, I, they're the same three questions. I have to find different ways to a- ask them. Oh, so. that's one of the questions. Yeah. yeah uh, that's you like, do, you, what have you learned? So that's a different, you do such a good job of sort of like hiding the questions that I didn't even notice. I because as we were talking, I was like, "What are the three questions?" I wonder. I didn't even realize you were asking me them. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. were the first two? Well, uh, where do you come from, and where are you going? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, 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 yes. And then, what have you learned? Um, what have I learned? I'm stalling. <laughs> I know. I understand. <laughs> what? What to tea? What to tea? What to tea? Have I learned? <laughs> um, look, I I think uh, one of the Big things. Okay, Here's, this is just something on my mind. Is when I was younger, I pushed myself so hard because I was like, God, I I want to make a career in comedy, and I know it's unlikely, and I know it's an uphill battle, and I just need to work as hard as I can at it. And I did that for you know 15 years of my life, and it took me a long time to realize. Oh, now the risk is, hey, I'm here, I'm doing comedy, right? Now the risk is I'm going to burn myself out by not resting enough. And I need to, you know, that that is as important a thing to me as working. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that's something that I've really had to learn is, is, you know, uh, hustle culture is so embedded in our society at this point that, you know, it's, it's really essential for me to, to find moments to fucking take a load off and just get high and play video games. Yeah. And so what I hope people take away from this is, it's tell yourself it's okay to get high and play video games. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah. That's, that's real. That's very fatherly advice. <laughs> it's okay. Kids. I was going to say it's not that fatherly, but you know what? I just was visiting my dad back home. Uh, well, not back home. He's now in Eugene, Oregon, which is not where I grew up, but bad at his home as visiting him. And he surprised me because one of the nights, I, the second night I was there, he was like, Adam, you want to have an edible? And I was like, yes, I do, Dad. Yeah. And then he had gotten a, I had gotten him a PlayStation, and he a lot of games he can't handle. They're too complex. Right. But he was like, which version of Tetris should I download? And I said, Dad, the answer is the Tetris Effect, which is an awesome psychedelic game where every time you drop a piece, it like plays music and stuff. Woo. And and we played the Tetris effect together and he was like, this is amazing. Wow. <laughs> and I had like such a stoner experience with my dad, yeah. you know, just sitting there. And it was one of the most profound experiences of my, of my adult life was getting to do that with him. And, um, so I think that it is fatherly advice to get high and play video games and you should do it with your dad. Yes. Well, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, to talk with me and, um, uh, the stand-up tour again. Let's let's adamconover.com. Yeah, adamconover.net dot slash net. tour dates. Or just adamconover.net. It's dot net, okay? Or Google my name. You'll right, find yeah, it. Adam Conover Tour Dates. What did we, we have to plug it in for you people? Come on. Yeah. Please come out. Go see Adam. 
And uh, tune back next week for another episode of this podcast. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco production. It is produced by Sean Doherty and engineered by Rob Schulte. Additional engineering support by Eduardo Perez and Joanna Samuel. Executive produced by Joanna Solitaroff, Adam Sachs, and Jeff Ross. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Maddie Ogden. Research by Alyssa Grawl. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to The Three Questions with Andy Richter wherever you get your podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a-growing? Can't you feel it in the showing? Oh, you must be a-knowing. I've got a big, big love. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.